Crux of the Matter, Episode 62, Sick Pastors. Hello and welcome to the Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors, for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And I'm Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Well, aren't we just the pair today, Scott? Yeah, uh, I think our topic is very relevant to yes, us. Yes, sick pastors. I've been fighting bronchitis for a couple weeks, and what's been going on with you? Well, I threw out my back, or I, I twisted something, or I sprained something, and so off and on, I've been on my back because of my back. Gotcha. Well, we'll, uh, I'm sure, deal with that. Uh, deal with that, or maybe we can have a special healing intervention here or something, and uh, see if we can't uh, see if we can't get somewhere with that. I I'm not real confident, frankly, no. but um, I'm willing to give it a try. Uh, but we have feedback today, so uh, so in the interests of keeping me from uh, coughing like a crazy person, uh, why don't you get us started on feedback, Scott? All right, so. Um... Do you want me to uh, tell who it's from? Yep. Okay. So we got a we got a note from a, a friend of ours who also has a, a great podcast called "The Good Guys Wear Black" or "Good Guys Wear Black." Father Anthony, and he's responding to one of our previous episodes where we talked about sainthood, and he says, "Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever." Great podcast as always. You asked about the Eastern Orthodox understanding of sainthood and how it differs from Lutheran and Roman Catholicism. As you said, there are two categories, saints as in believers and saints as in those believers who have been recognized by the church for the strength of their witness, life, and Christ. Our view regarding the latter is pretty much as you described it. The prayers of the righteous availeth much, and God is the God of the living, not the dead. So we ask for their prayer and intercession. We do not have a theology of reserve grace, but we do have a theology of theosis, sanctification, holiness. So the super saints are no more or less saved than other believer saints, but they do experience or share the benefits of a life fully, uh, a life lived more fully in Christ. I hope this helps. We can talk about relics and the like, as you say, ancient traditions at some other point, if you like. Again, I love and benefit from your podcast. It is a blessing. Father Anthony Perkins, Eastern Orthodox priest and fan. So, well, thank you for the feedback. We appreciate it. And, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, and it's nice to know someone's listening. And, and thanks for helping to clarify some of that for us on on the the role or the belief of sainthood in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Sure. Yeah, I'll have to um, I'll have to think on on a little bit of what the benefits of a life lived more fully in Christ uh, means both for the saints at the time, but also for us. What does that mean? What does that mean for us now? I don't have, I don't have an answer to that, Scott, but um, I do think that that's a very, that's an interesting phrase that I don't think I had heard before. No, but you know, I mean, we have this concept of, you know, growing in grace or, you know, that, that someone might have a, I can conceive of what it might mean to say that someone has a fuller, uh, life in Christ. You know, we, we, we tend to shy away from trying to measure people's sanctification or their level of progress in the faith, that kind of thing. But, um, I, I can, I can conceive of what it means to say that someone has a, a fuller life in Christ. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, I can too. And, I mean, that would be a good topic at some point, I think, because 
Lutherans mm -hmm. tend to shy away from anything that sounds like process anything, you know, process yeah. theology, progressive sanctification, any of this kind of stuff. But the scriptures repeatedly talk about growth. Yep. Um, in, in fact, this this coming Sunday, I, I mean, this is maybe a counterexample. This coming Sunday, the gospel is uh, is from Luke 17, where you get that uh, Lord increase our faith. And uh, mm -hmm. so that'll be a, that'll be a topic for another uh, uh, for another time. But I think that would be a good one. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think so, too. I mean, all sorts of passages pop into mind, you know, Jesus chastising the disciples for having little faith or small faith, sure. weak faith. Sure, sure. What's next? OK, so we also um, have heard from Pastor Jared. I guess it's knees. Pastor so. knees. Uh, St. John Lutheran Church, LCMS, Corliss, Minnesota. And he says, it is good to hear you and Scott again. Your podcasts are always a joy bringer. Nice. Um, I, too, each year struggle with the task of teaching catechism, not because I have too little, but I think because I have too many resources to pull from and also because the kids come with such heaps of baggage. I'm glad to hear that I'm not alone in this and take comfort that my struggles are not original. Today, I will be leading my confirmands through the First and Second Commandments in a Bible study discussion format, which includes some multimedia aspects, commercials and such, to the aim of beginning to teach them how to appropriately see and hear in our world. I will let you know how it goes. Your teaching and preaching are in my prayers. Well, thanks, Pastor Knees, for um, your support and your prayers and for listening and uh, and likewise. But, um, I'm yeah, I'll be very interested to hear. That sounds like a fascinating approach to teaching the First and Second Commandments. I'll be anxious to hear what you, which, how that went. Yeah, and what I like about that is the language of teaching them how to appropriately see and hear in our world. Um, mm -hmm. I would call that mm -hmm. worldview training or, you mm -hmm. know, lens lens training. You know, when you go to the doctor and you go to the, okay, which one is clearer? <laughs> one or two, one or two. Well, mm -hmm. there there is this notion, I think, in, in uh, catechesis that you are teaching the catechumen how to see with the eyes of faith. And how to hear with the, how to hear with the ears of faith. And so both of those are kind of um, are kind of kind of in play there. That's very cool. I like it. Mm -hmm. I like well, it. and I'm I'm curious what kind of multimedia things he has that he puts he brings together for 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 doing that. I can imagine, you know, if you're talking about the first commandment, uh, bringing in advertising that you know tries to teach us to or tries to train advertising which tries to train us to want something you know as the center of our life right. besides god right. um you know I'm, I'm always intrigued when when pastors use video clips or or movie clips or things from tv or things from the internet because i'm always looking for resources too, things to try to liven up my lectures sure so the next part in our uh in our show is usually what are you teaching but i think we should kind of change that to either what are you teaching or what are you learning you are right with that, Scott? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Both of us are doing doctoral studies, so this gives us an opportunity to kind of share with others what we're reading or what we've been what we've been gaining from our studies. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So, so what are you uh, teaching or learning right now? Anything? Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, what I'm teaching is uh, several sections of my uh, intro to theology class for freshmen, college freshmen, and the the last lecture I did was on theodicy, the doctrine of suffering or the problem of evil. Why, why do bad things happen? And 
you know, this is, of course, one of the toughest questions in theology. And, and I'm always cognizant whenever I teach this, either in a congregation or in a classroom, that there are going to be people listening who are suffering. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, they are going through something. I, I you know, I know that that's the case. And, in, 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 you know, at least one instance, someone shared something with me that they're going through. So I know that when I'm talking about this, it's not just abstract but that some people are really going through this. And I think that affects how you, how you describe this. It's a tough issue. Sure. You know, what, what, what do we say? And so I pull out a few Bible passages and talk about God's hidden will and so on like that. And, um, and what I'm learning is I'm learning quite a bit about liberation theology because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm learning about liberation theology and how that applies to healthcare. Sure. So, um, you know, you know, injustices that exist in healthcare, you know, people that uh, different uh, uh, groups of people, minorities who, who don't receive adequate health care, who don't have the same access to health care, even even within the United States. And so that's going to be that's something I'm really diving into right now. How about you? Well, I'm uh, I'm mostly reading. I mean, I'm always teaching and doing Bible classes. But right now, what is really making my head hurt? is I'm learning about what is called mimetic theory. Um, mimesis is, means imitation. So mimetic theory is the, uh, is this, uh, is, I guess you could call it a philosophical theory or maybe even anthropological uh, by this man named Rene Girard. And essentially it's a way of looking at how, how, human beings interact with one another. I'm doing it through the lens of this book by a man named Gil Bailey. It's called Violence Unveiled Humanity at the Crossroads. Hmm. And the, the basic thesis of this is that cultures and societies uh, survive and remain stable through, uh, through imitation, through uh, desires and so, you know, kind of the classic example is you have two toddlers and that uh, one's already in the room. The other is another toddler walks into the room. It's a room full of toys. Which toy does the toddler that just walked into the room want? The one the first one's playing with. You got it. Exactly. Right, that right. there is some sort of transference of desires and that and that, according to Girard, is is kind of played out over and over and over again in mythology that we go through these uh, desires. And at some point that desire turns, uh, turns violent and that that violence has to be kind of ritually expressed. And again, this is Girard. Uh, the, the great counter to that is the cross is the theology of the cross and and how the cross and Christianity really is the only religion in the entire world that that looks at the victim and identifies with the victim rather than the than the oppressor. So so I'm kind of trying to wrap my brain around this and what this might do to uh, our Lutheran understanding of the atonement or justification and kind of all sorts of other things. It's it's pretty dense reading, frankly, um, but it is fascinating, and uh, and it's it's kind of making my head hurt. So yeah, yeah, sounds like it making yeah. my head hurt. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I, 
and I figure I don't fully understand it until I can explain it in a few relatively simple sentences. So uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we'll see how it goes. But uh, but yeah, that's what I've been that's what I've been reading of late. Sounds great. Yeah. So our topic for today, which seems kind of apropos, is the topic of what do pastors do when they get sick? Now, I don't mean sick in the head, which we have sort of uh, covered in other times and areas, but I mean just good old fashioned get sick. This is the this is the fall. This is the busiest time of the year, arguably, for parish pastors when everything on earth starts, confirmation, adult instruction, Bible classes that uh, took a hiatus in the summer. Everything starts, you know, in your vocation as a professor. Mm-hmm. I'm sure this is a terribly busy, busy time for you. And and in the middle of all of this stuff, pastors, like everyone else, get sick. You know, I've had bronchitis for two weeks. You've had a you've had back problems for a couple, three weeks. How do you as a pastor deal with that? What do you do and how do you kind of take care of yourself in a way that is actually possible so that you can kind of continue your vocation while not killing yourself? I think that's kind of tough. I I think pastors need to be okay with taking sick days. You know, and we we tend to think that everything's going to come crashing to pieces if we disappear for a few days. But somehow we have to get past that. You know, we we talk a lot on this podcast about self-care and pastors who, um, you know, need mental health breaks and all this kind of thing. But uh, what about your physical health? And and there's nothing you can do. You're going to get sick just like anybody else. You know, there's it's the rare person who can say that they don't ever get sick. And so we, you have to be able to allow things to just go on without you for, <laughs> for a period of time. Right. And somehow we don't, we're not comfortable with that. Well, and here's, and here's the problem. I don't think this is unique to, uh, to the pastoral office, but since <laughs> that's the one that we're in, that's the one we're going to, we're going to deal with. The problem with taking a sick day for me is when I come back, everything is still there. It's just now I have one less day to do it. So I take a sick day right now and I've still got to preach on Sunday. I've still got to prepare Bible class. I've still got confirmation. I've still got all of these things. It's just that I now have less time to do them in. And so, well, you know, you can, you you can't cancel Sunday morning, but you could cancel a Bible class here or, you know, not Sunday morning Bible class. I don't mean, but like, or even confirmation. When do you do confirmation? Wednesday nights. I mean, theoretically, you could say, you know what, this week I need to cancel everything that isn't nailed down and just get 10 hours of sleep and recuperate. Yeah. It, that, and, and I, maybe it messes with my own um, perfectionism or my own Messiah complex or something, but I don't like doing that. Well, yeah, I, I, I really know. don't. Right. And now what I am totally comfortable with doing is using being sick as a way of getting out of things I don't want to do. <laughs> I mean, that I am an expert at. I can I can do that like great. You know, I'm not doing any shut in calls this week. First mm-hmm. of all, because I'm sick, I don't want to get them sick. Second of all, because I'm sick. And so I have a legitimate excuse for not doing the things that I ought to be doing. 
So I, I don't know. I guess that's what that's what frustrates me personally about the whole thing is that it it so easily plays into my own sinful sinful nature. So yeah, I know. I mean, I always am f- fearful of sloth. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Fearful yep. of you know since there's nobody since I'm not punching a time card and there's nobody watching necessarily over your shoulder every day uh, to make sure that you're, you know, using your time wisely, you're afraid of being accused or not even accused, but being, being thought of as not working hard. I don't know. I mean, I always, I always felt in the parish that I felt like I had something to prove in a way that I'm, I'm a hard worker and, you know, and I'm always going to be going and going, but you know, I think that when you've got a fever, <laughs> you know, or you're coughing phlegm, that yep. those are those are occasions when it's okay to say, you know what, I'm not I'm not slo- I'm not slothful simply because I'm going to take three days to do nothing but drink fluids and sleep. Yeah, yeah. I I think that the issue the issue for me or a part of it with it is that because of my depression, which heaven knows we've talked about many times Mm -hmm. um depression to the outsider so often appears like laziness yeah it appears like you know you just don't you just don't do stuff or you don't want to do stuff and so whenever i am in the not doing stuff mode whether it is because i legitimately have bronchitis and and just i just want to lie in bed all day or whether I legitimately am suffering from major depression and I just want to lie in bed all day. Mm-hmm. Um, in either one of those cases, uh, I kind of I don't want to draw attention to myself. I don't, but I also don't want to be accused of being of being lazy or slothful. Right. And right. so my own inclination is to uh, is to either tend to is is to either tend to kind of slough off getting better in the hopes that I can kind of hide it or mm-hmm. make it so obvious that I'm ill that I can kind of get away with anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's a toughie. It is. You know, is. but I mean, the, you, you do run up against a brick wall. I mean, something like bronchitis, you know, that can drag on. Yeah. Tell me about and so, it. I know, you know, or like having a cough, you know, I wouldn't necessarily get bronchitis, but I would get these persistent coughs and, and, you know, that's not, that's not good. You're not able, because you're not able to make shut-in calls, you're not able to make hospital visits. You know, you feel bad about talking to anybody because you're blowing your air all over them. Right. Um, you know, and, and just preaching and even, even the Sunday morning business of preaching and administering the sacrament when you're you know, everybody knows you're holding and you're holding down uh, a right. coughing fit. Not good. Yeah. Not good. Well, when I and there are definitely times when when pastors have to you kind of have to get through it and deal with it because that's what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, what I tend to do very practically uh, when I'm doing when I'm doing that is I make my um, I make my personal hygiene uh at, at one level, as unobtrusive as possible, if I've got to blow my nose during the service or whatever, I'm not, mm. you know, I'm, if I got a mic on, I'm going to turn the mic off and I'm going to sort of deal with it in a very practical way that's unobtrusive with one exception. And that is when it comes to preparing for the sacrament. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where I will very publicly wash my hands mm-hmm. and, you know, and do whatever kind of preparatory work that I have to in order to prepare for the sacrament. Uh, it used to be that the priest uh, would would have a uh, lavabo, uh, you know, this mm-hmm. bowl for washing your hands. And that was actually a part of the rite of preparation for the sacrament. And I, I can imagine all kinds of theological significance behind that, but I can really imagine a lot of very practical reasons on why that may be a good idea to kind of re reinstitute is to just, you know, make that ritual washing a part of our preparation. It, it's not perfect. And, you know, mm-hmm. if somebody's a germaphobe, the, the last place you want to be is taking the sacrament. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, I, that's a whole other issue, I think. But it is. And, and I'm with you. I would always, I mean, I would, I would was sick or, or not. I would go back into the sacristy to wash my hands with soap and water and would, and then would use some kind of hand sanitizer or something. Right. And I told people about it and people knew this. You didn't, you couldn't see it because I would go, you know, it'd be during right. a hymn or something and I'd be, I'd be behind the scenes, but I would, I would wash my hands, you know, whether I was sick or not, just as a, as a matter of course. And so the, you know, the elders who are assisting with me on a Sunday would see it. The acolytes would notice it, things like that. So people were aware that I was, you and know, you doing. Were, and you tried being very consistent about doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tried to be very consistent about doing it and had a big bottle of hand sanitizer right next to the door where I walk out into the, into the same uh, sanctuary. And uh, so you know, there are little things like that you can do, but you're right. If, if someone's a germaphobe, they're going to, they're going to be uncomfortable with the uh, Lord's Supper anyway, for other reasons. Right. Well, it, it, it just reminds me, Scott, that a part of what, a part of what building trust with a congregation means is having uh, trustworthy habits, trustworthy practices that are going to say, I am paying attention to you. I know what you, I know what's going on and and I know that these things are important and you can and you can count on me to go through these steps along the way. Um now a, 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 again just to sort of circle back to the when the pastor is sick question I I, I don't know does it do you need to have someone in your congregation that's kind of their job is to sort of tell you, you know, you need to go home and go to bed mm-hmm. and cut that, cut this out and we'll fix, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll make things work. You know, do you, does that mean that the pastor needs to have sort of subs? If there's something that you really don't feel like you can, uh, like you can, you, you can uh, skip for a week. I, I don't know. Those are, those are tough questions, but, uh, but I like the idea of, of having a person or, or maybe a couple people in the congregation who's, they see it as sort of a part of their vocation to look after your physical well-being. I always think that's one of the roles of the elders. Yeah. The elders, I think, are supposed to be the advocate for the pastor. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, they're the ones that are, ought to be making sure that you're being paid adequately. That They're the ones that ought to make sure that, you know, if your family has any kind of need, that you're not suffering in silence or you're just suffering in isolation. Sure. Um, you know, so I always... And I've had elders and others, not just elders, but I've had others who, who kind of fit that, you know, would, would mother me. And right. that was fine. You know, that was okay. I, there are times when you need that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, 
uh, it is reasonable if the if the pastor's married. Certainly, that's a part of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a part of what a wife is going to do, just as a husband does for her. Um, or if there's a deaconess at your church, or you know, there may be different ways. But I I kind of like the idea of of the pastor sort of giving intentional permission to say, you know, I need I need people who are looking out for me and who are going to give me wise counsel, even when mm-hmm. I am not giving myself wise counsel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that may be worth thinking about because that too is a, is, is kind of a trust trustworthiness issue. I'm not going to receive that kind of counsel if I don't trust the people giving it. So that, that sort of cuts both ways, I expect. Sure. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Sure. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Um, I think we should probably go on. You think that's enough? You had anything else you I, want to say? No, okay. no, I, no, I think that, as, you know, we pastors need to get over ourselves a little bit and, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, take care of, take better care of our health. Yeah. I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, before we go on to our joy bringers, a couple things. First of all, if you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can go to the crux of the matter.net slash podcast slash 62. And I would invite you to do so. We definitely welcome feedback either by going to feedback at the crux of the matter.net. You can email us there or finding us on Twitter or on Facebook or anywhere that peppercorns and stigmires are to be found. Uh, that's probably us. Uh, but before we go on to our joy bringers, I want to uh, bring to our listeners attention that this is you know, this isn't a um, uh, this isn't a PBS station, but this is kind of our annual plea period when uh, our fees for hosting a podcast, you know, our hosting service, and all these things all kind of come come due in September and October. Doesn't cost us a lot two three hundred dollars a year, maybe something like that. But that is enough, especially in the fall when everything else is due. Uh, that if you find this podcast to be of benefit to you and you have a few dollars that you want to uh, toss our way, we would appreciate it. Uh, you can do that. Uh, there's a there's a link on the web page that goes to donate or uh, or a tip jar, I think is maybe what we call it. And you can do it that way. Uh, go to feedback or you can um, uh, you can email me at feedback if you want to try and give in some other way. And I'll be happy to facilitate making that happen. But uh, if you're able to uh, send a few bucks our way, we'd sure appreciate it. Anything Anything you want to add to that, Scott? No, sounds good. All right. Well, what's, uh, what's bringing you joy this week, my friend? Okay, well, um, this isn't quite something that's bringing me joy as much as it is you know, it's fascinating and interesting. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the areas that I've done some research on has been this this very important topic and controversial issue in the church today of uh, transgenderism and what to do. How how is the church ministered to all people in their particular needs and their particular brokenness uh, without compromising our understanding of what it means to be a man and a woman, biblically speaking. And so one helpful resource that has come out recently is in the fall issue of a, of a, it's a, 
it's a paper journal, but it's also an online journal called the New Atlantis. Their fall 2016 edition is on gender, sex and gender. And it's, uh, it's, I highly recommend it. It, it, it's a, the entire journal. So it's like 200 and some pages is devoted to is written by is one article, one long article by these two doctors, uh, two psychiatrists who are renowned researchers and, and very um, elite in their fields who look at the real data that we have about the health, um, the mental health and the physical health of people who are intersex and people who are transgender, uh, you know, people that are experiencing gender dysphoria and people that are post-operative transsexuals. And, you know, what, what's the data that we actually have scientifically and it's, it's eye-opening, it's, it's informative. And if this is a subject that you're interested in or that you feel like you need to bone up on, I recommend this as a source. Hmm. Very interesting. So this is, Mm -hmm. This is not a Christian journal. This is no, this no. is kind of a, a, a like a culture journal or something. I'm not sure I'm familiar with it. Yeah, no. the new Atl- yeah the new Atlantis is a um, it's an online. I mean, it's a website, but they also do a print journal. Okay, and it's they call themselves a journal of technology and society. They lean right. I mean, they you know, and it just you know, full disclosure, they're not sort of a um, you know a non-biased organization. They gotcha. they lean right, and they have a lot of Christians who write for them. But it's not exclusively; it's not a theology journal or anything okay. like that. You know, they mostly write about technology and society. You know, hmm. things like um, things like well, they do a lot of bioethics stuff, which is why I'm kind of interested in them. But they have their recent edition is on sexuality and gender, and it's the subtitle is findings from the biological, psychological, and social sciences. Hmm. Lauren, Lawrence Meyer and Paul McHugh. Um, they're, they're both very knowledgeable doctors and, um, you know, good sources, solid sources. But they're – and they say up front, you know, that they're not trying to make a case. They're just trying to analyze the data. Gotcha. And at, le- at least as they do it, they analyze the data suggesting that all is not – well for for folks that are suffering with gender dysphoria and people that are transgender the the mental health and the physical health outcomes for uh, post-operative transsexuals for instance is 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 not good it's not optimistic suicide rate is very high substance abuse is very high uh, and there's lots of other medical issues that come into play and they just present the data from non-biased sources and so, you're, you know, hopefully people can look at this and say, you know what, maybe we need maybe just accommodating people who, um, you know, are wanting to uh, identify as a gender other than their birth sex um, is not the best way for them is not the maybe we ought to be spending more time looking at cures rather than looking for cures rather than accommodating people's um preferred gender identity. Hmm. And I recognize that name, Paul McHugh. Isn't that the guy from Johns Hopkins? Am I remembering that right? Yeah. And he's written, I mean, he's written in the Wall Street Journal. He's written in First Things and he's written in others. Yeah. He used to be the head psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins University Hospital and was, um, he was in charge of their, their program that was doing uh, sex change operations and put an end to it because he didn't feel like it was actually benefiting his patients. Hmm. 
Interesting. Well, yeah, I will uh, yeah. look forward to. I will look forward to reading that. That sounds like a good good material. Very good. Yeah, and you can read it all online. They have it as a PDF on their website, but um, you can also, if you want the print journal, I think it's seven bucks, and then they'll send you a print copy. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And we'll have that in the show <laughs> notes as well. Great. So that's good. So my pick is I. It, I would be hard pressed to think of something that would be more different, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Saturday, Saturday night, Catherine and I uh, finally had a uh, date night. We don't usually do date nights on Saturday because, you know, Sunday, church, etc. Right. But it was the only time we could do it. And so that's what we did. And we went and saw The Magnificent Seven. This is a, this is a remake of the uh, of the classic Western from, uh, I want to say, about 1960, somewhere in that neighborhood with Yoel Brenner, James Coburn, Steve McQueen, uh, Charles Bronson was in it. Really, all kinds of people were in that one. And that was really a riff off of The Seven Samurai, which was from 1954 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So this is a remake of a, of a remake. Um, but it was a lot of fun. I uh, it's It's a Western. It's kind of your classic... Um, it's your, it's your classic big, uh, big bad guy comes into a town where there is a mine and he wants to buy out everyone in the valley so that he can mine this gold mine and get all the money. And, and he's rough and he's killing people left and right. And, uh, you know, they're dying. And so they go and hire this, uh, hire this guy named Chisholm. Uh, who then finds half a dozen other people to help him uh, lead them uh, to defend themselves against the uh, against the bad guy. I mean, that's basically the plot. And oh, yeah. uh, and it is a uh, it's a fun movie. Denzel Washington is the is probably the biggest biggest name in it. But uh, Chris Pratt is also uh, is also in it. Ethan Hawke is in it. Um, it's got some, it's got some mm -hmm. pretty big names in it, uh, which is unusual for an ensemble movie like that. But, uh, but it was fun. It wasn't too, I, I wouldn't say that it was too deep. There weren't a lot of, um, sort of moral twists to it or complicated, uh, complicated things to it. It was kind of a straight up old fashioned Western and, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. The ads make it look really good. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say that it's the greatest Western I've ever seen, but I did enjoy it very much. Um, and it is it's it's worth having a it's worth having a look. That's for sure. We have awesome. fun with it. Awesome. Well, my friend, uh, I think that brings yeah. us to the end here. Do you have anything else to uh, anything else to add to our listeners? Uh, no, no, just. Um... Uh, thanks for listening and help us out if you can. All righty. I think that'll do it. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>